I am Angus Kebble, and welcome to Factum Agri, dedicated to New Zealand's agriculture industry. Key areas of focus are industry analysis with key stakeholders, policy makers, engagement with farmers and producers, and working to close the rural-urban divide. Farmers work hard. They love the land and are a critical part of New Zealand's fabric. There are many things for farmers to think about, whether it be drought, market conditions and farm gate returns, and the increased pressure from the public or policymakers. Working with Postquake Farming, we are taking a look at what farmers are doing to improve their businesses, their biodiversity, their land use and their well-being. The environment has a significant impact on farming and rural communities. And as our environment changes, farmers are increasingly at risk of the impacts that this change brings. NIWA scientist Petra Pierce is currently with me as I discuss climate change with farmers in different parts of New Zealand's farming regions. This week, I check in once again with Petra Pierce and I talk with farmer Murray Holdaway to get his views on climate change. I will also take a dive into the RMA and freshwater policy statement and the practical implications for farmers. Firstly, let's check in with Murray. Hello Murray, thank you for talking with me today. No, that's fine. Please can you tell me about your farm, where you are located and what you farm? Yeah, we've got a 440 cow dairy unit. Um, and I've got a 50-50 share market engaged on that. Um, I'm the fifth generation on, on part of the farming farm, and so um, I've, I've, uh, I was brought up on the farm. Um, in the last um, 10 to 12 years, we've, we've doubled that size. Um, we've purchased a couple of neighbouring properties. It's in the Tara, uh in the North Wairapa area. Um, so we, we're in a, a region there with pretty solid rainfall and, and well spread throughout the year with fairly leaky soil, so there's some issues around um, uh, nutrient management there. Some river flats up into some rolling hills uh, and we've got a long river front of John, the Mangahau River. I actually live off farm um, uh, over in Palmerston North, just out of Palmerston North on a small um, grazing property there. Over the past couple of weeks, I've been discussing climatic changes on farm with various farmers and indeed Niwa. Have you noticed any climatic changes on your property over the years? Uh, yes, well, uh, I'm sure you know, it's hard to differentiate between um, season to season. You know, I've been farming um, uh, with owned the property for uh, 42 or 43 years. Um, so um, certainly when I look back, uh, th- things are very different now to, to then uh, in, in terms of climate and a whole lot of other ways, obviously. Um, and... And um, so, so yes, there certainly is, is climatic change, but how much of it is is, um, is short-term variances as opposed to long-term change, um, it's really hard to, to uh, identify. The changes you have noticed, have you had to make any changes to your farming system to accommodate those changes? An example might be stocking rate, for example, or the type of feed that you grow? Yes, and again, uh, we, we certainly have, but again... Uh, even with know exactly how much of that has been driven purely by the change in climate. Um, and I have a philosophy of um, continual improvement, so I'm always looking to change. So there's a whole lot of things changed. So what changes have you made, Murray? Um, the, the, there's, like I say, many things that have, that have influenced the change. So that we've changed our system uh, from an all-grass system to one that incorporates... Um, some maize silage and some palm kernel and a bit of uh, winter grazing, but, but not, not too much winter grazing. 
the breeding for maize silage has improved. It's become more, uh, the yields have become better, uh, a reliable source of a bulk feed for us. So, um, so that's in our system now, and that helps reduce nitrate leaching when we feed it out as well. Um, I'm also part of the Tower Plantain project at the moment, which is a quite a large project that Dairy and Zeds are heading up, um, looking at uh, incorporating plantain into, into the farming systems. Um, so I'm involved in the governance of that uh, project. The last uh, seven or eight years, I've been incorporating plantain, not using it as a crop, but in, in, in a mixed sward. Um, and uh, the yields um, we've done in the last couple of years, we, we've done some things like having half paddocks of, uh, of a mixed sward and half paddocks of ryegrass only. And then, so, so there's another change in that. Um, and obviously, if we were if we we're able to to get that plantain successfully incorporated into the system, that'll have some significant environmental benefits as well. Um, mm. So, so that, 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 that just some changes. Yeah. Do you think we should be storing more water in this country? Water not only benefits farming communities, but our urban communities require water also. This has just been highlighted in Auckland recently. It's a no-brainer, really. Angus point about water storage, um, in my opinion, which is positive effect on waterways. Um, you know, taking uh, surplus water and ensuring low flows are, are maintained. And so there's probably no country in the world better place than us to do that. Do you think there's a disconnect between urban and rural communities? Yes, I do. There's a but in that, though, to me. I mean, I think um, when you look at communities all around, uh, whether they're urban or, or rural, there's, there's disconnects of all sorts. We need to be careful that we don't, we in the rural sector don't over overemphasize that but but we certainly uh, we are part of the problem as well and so we have to be part of the solution do you think policymakers are on the right track in regard to the agri sector and are recent changes to the rma workable and in particular the freshwater policy statement in terms of the rma i, but I think we've just gone too far now and, and what concerns me about it now is that you know the the elected representatives uh, i.e. regional council uh, councillors, when, when a proposal goes into, into the system and it goes through the courts, you know, they lose complete control of it. And that, that appears wrong to me. That's what democracy is about to me. We elect them to make the decisions on our behalf. Uh, and, and of course, the cost of it all is such that um, it's just adding to the cost of the living for, for all New Zealanders. So there certainly needs to be some reforms there. Freshwater staff is, is yes, that's certainly uh, in front of mind at the moment, um, and and it, it's clearly uh, the, the proposal that we've got. I would describe it as a shoddy piece of uh, legislation. Um, it's lacking clar uh, clarity. Um, uh, it's simply unworkable in places, uh, and it's disappointing that we've we've got to the point we have. But the intent of it, I have absolutely no problem with it all. And environmental impacts is a huge part of that. Is farming becoming harder, Murray? Undoubtedly. And, and I think um, on a number of fronts, um, and, and when that question is discussed, you know, people talk about compliance uh, uh, and all of those sort of issues, and, and that's undoubtedly a part of it. There's a fundamental issue, though, that, that, that is making even those issues harder, and that, that is the economic returns you get from farming nowadays. Um, it's, it's certainly uh, a whole lot harder. The margins have been squeezed over time, so it's a whole lot harder to, uh, to make a good economic return from uh, farming at the moment, and particularly during now that we've come out of um, 
we've had a, a couple of phases over the last um, 15 or 20 years where capital gain has been a significant part of the return. And now that we are sort of reached the end of that road um, and people are, are relying on cash surpluses, um, you know, that, that's not easy to get nowadays. Uh, I mean, if you look at it uh, from an international perspective, um, uh, you know, there's this continual drive um, for all countries to be uh, competitive in, in the uh, international markets. Um, and that's no different for, for New Zealand dairy companies. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, the, the, the squeeze is really coming on. Um, and, uh, you know, we are no different uh, as agriculture uh, for a long time, really. We're at the end of the chain. So there's certainly an economic, underlying economic um, uh, issue around farming in the future. Um, of course, farmers are some of their own worst enemies in that respect because a significant part of that is the price of land. Um, but then again, there's a really good, strong argument to suggest that they're not making any more land. And so uh, it should be, um, should be at a price that it is. Um, another aspect is getting back to the, to the climate changes and everything. Um, when I started farming, it was actually quite easy to, um, to pivot um, uh, because all you, all you were really doing is operating a productive uh, system then. And so you were trying to maximize uh, the production. Uh, whereas nowadays, um, we and I'm, I'm certain the majority of farmers uh, in New Zealand, we have to take our environmental footprint into consideration. So when we reconsider what we're doing on farm on a daily basis, um, you know, there's that environmental and social aspects now come into our decisions as well. And so they influence, um, you know, how and when we change uh, direction slightly. And, um, and, and that just adds to the complexity of that decision making. Thank you very much for your time today, Murray. Hello, Petra. Thank you for joining me again this week. Kia ora, Angus. How's it going? Really good, thanks. For those that missed last week, please tell me about the work you do. So I'm a climate scientist at NIWA, uh, which is the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research. I have experience in providing climate change information to the likes of regional councils and businesses, and also communicating what climate change may mean for different parts of the country and different sectors into the future. Today we're looking at climatic conditions in the Manawatu and Whanganui region. From a climatic perspective, do you break this region down into different zones? Yeah, so we can split the Manawatu-Whanganui region into four zones. Uh, so I'll start with the highest elevations. Uh, so we have the Central Plateau and the Rohini and Tararua ranges, which have the highest rainfall totals and coldest winter temperatures. Then we have the northern hill country from Tomaranui around uh, to around Whanganui, which has relatively high rainfall totals and is warmer than um, obviously those higher elevations. Um, however, it can actually get quite foggy and frosty in the valleys uh, there in the winter and particularly around Tomaranui, it can get quite chilly. Uh, the third zone is the lowland area. And if you can imagine a triangle approximately between Whanganui, Palmerston North and Levin, um, and this is actually one of the driest parts of the North Island, surprisingly. Um, and temperatures are fairly moderate there. And then we also have the eastern side of the ranges around Danny Verk, uh, where rainfall is moderate and temperatures are also quite mild. From what direction does this region get its weather from? And how big of a part do the Ruahini and Tararua Mountains play for the various zones? 
So much of the region has relatively few climatic extremes. It's one of the parts of the country that is, is fairly moderate uh, most of the time. It doesn't get particularly hot or cold or wet or dry. Um, of course, the exception to that is the central plateau and the ranges, which get much colder um, during the winter and, and get snowfall as well. Um, the prevailing wind direction is from the west, uh, which usually delivers adequate rainfall for the likes of pasture growth and also relatively mild temperatures. Um, the region generally gets more rainfall um, than on the eastern side of the ranges like the Hawke's Bay and that's uh, just because it's exposed to that prevailing westerly wind. The eastern parts of the region around Dannyvirk uh, does get more rainfall, um, it spills over the ranges and it actually kind of funnels through the Manawatu Gorge as well. So it's not as dry as areas further north uh, like the Hawke's Bay. Have we seen any changes in rainfall across the region over the past 100 years? So we've analysed rainfall data going back about 50 years for the region and so between about 1960 and 2016 uh, both Whanganui and Waiuru experienced increases in spring rainfall totals um, but there haven't been any other significant trends in either annual or seasonal rainfall over that time for other places in the region. What about sunshine hours? Has there been any changes there? Yeah, so we have seen an increase in sunshine hours for the region, um, measured over the past 50 years again in, in uh, Whanganui, Tomaranui, Waiuru and Dannyvirk. And this is um, a similar pattern that we see across most of New Zealand as well, and it's due to reduced cloud cover overall. And we expect to see this trend continue uh, with ongoing climate change as in increasing greenhouse gas concentrations continue to drive changes to our atmospheric circulation and cloud cover. I know you mentioned that the region in general is quite temperate. Have you seen any changes in the range of temperature in the Manawatu region? And does this region get big frost events like many eastern regions do? And are frost days changing at all? The valleys of the region, particularly in the northern part of the region and on the central plateau, um, it can get quite chilly and quite frosty in the winter. Um, they're quite shady areas and the, the cool air um, kind of sinks down to the bottom of those valleys in the winter and, and you can get quite a lot of frosts, particularly areas like Tomaranui and, and that kind of northern um, hill country can get quite cold and um, we see some of our lowest temperatures in the North Island in that area and around the central plateau as well. Is that just due to elevation? Uh, so yeah it's, it's partly due to elevation and it's also partly due to just the the shape of the land so you have you know these hills that are quite high and then valleys that are you know quite low and, and the cool air um, kind of flows downhill and can uh, pool in the bottom of those hills and it, it just gets really cold and um, doesn't have anywhere to escape to. Mm. And it's quite, it's quite calm as well, so there's not a lot of wind um, to kind of uh, blow that cold air away, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, but in terms of uh, trends in frost, um, Tomaranui has actually experienced a declining trend in frost occurrence since the 1970s. So even though it's, it's still pretty chilly, it's maybe not as chilly as it once was. <laughs> mm. um, and then in terms of... Um, in terms of other temperature trends, we've seen an increase in the number of growing degree days in Whanganui, uh, which is an important metric for the primary sector as it gives indications of the timing of certain um, plant, plant developments like bud burst and flowering and things like that over a season. Short term gain though, if we are seeing that temperature rise gradually, that has potential problems for prolonged drought periods, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. And, and also um, other issues like pests that um, maybe can survive over the winter 
if um, you know the frosts at the moment um, they can't survive but in the future if there's fewer frosts they may be able to survive so there's all sorts of uh, ramifications that come with a warming climate. And what about extreme events in the region? So um, the most extreme recent flood event that people would recall would be the floods of 2004 which caused um, inundation around the region and a huge amount of slips in the hill country. Um, the, the Manawatu region is fairly prone to heavy rainfall and um, occasional flooding so it's not unusual for the region to see um, those kinds of events but that uh, 2004 event was a, a very large and widespread flood event and one of the most um, expensive um, weather events in the past few decades. Um, in terms of temperature, we're seeing more records broken every year. Um, in fact, Palmerston North, Levin and Taumaranui have just recorded their warmest winters on record. Um, and for Levin, the data goes back to 1895. So that's a really significant record to have broken. Um, and we expect both of these things, floods and warmer temperatures, to increase into the future with ongoing climate change. Is there any evidence that the timing of seasons are changing? A lot of farmers talk to anecdotal evidence that seasons are becoming less predictable for them. Yeah, so one of the key changes we're likely to see in the future is that our climate is going to become more variable. And that may mean less predictable. I mean, of course, that then depends on the technology we have available to um, be able to predict our, our seasonal climate. Um, and we've certainly seen some unusually warm seasons in the past few years, uh, with this winter being New Zealand's warmest on record and summer um, 2017 to 18 being the warmest summer on record. So we're, we're seeing this shift in... Um, in that kind of seasonality of, of temperature and, and things are shifting to the warmer end. I mean, as time goes on, we expect to see changes in um, the timing of certain climatic events in the seasons. So things like the date of the first frost um, will get later into the year and the last frost will be earlier in the year. So it will be a kind of compressed frost season. Um, and then on the other side, uh, the warm summer temperatures will extend further into spring and autumn. What climatic trends can the farmer in the Manawatu expect in the next 50 years? Is it much different to places we've already talked about and visited the Wairarapa and Canterbury, for example? Yeah, so in terms of temperature, um, it's relatively similar. So it's going to continue to get warmer um, with increasing numbers of warm days and reducing numbers of frosts. In terms of rainfall, it is a, quite a different signal to um, to the Wairarapa in particular. So um, over the next few decades, uh, we're not likely to see a huge amount of change but um, seasonal rainfall may increase or decrease a small amount. Um, but by the end of the century, so kind of more like that 2080 onwards um, timescale, we're expecting to see that average rainfall will increase um, in the western part of, of the Manawatu. Um, so not talking about the Danivik side at the moment. Um, so yeah, the annual rainfall is likely to increase in that western part of the region. Um, and that's due to exposure of the region to increasing westerly winds over time. So we're expecting with climate change for our, our kind of westerly airflow to get stronger. And because of the, uh, the exposure of the western side of the country and uh, what we call the orographic rainfall effect. So that's where uh, moist air masses kind of hit um, they come along the ocean and they hit a landmass and they go up and over the ranges and they actually get rid of most of their rainfall on the upwind side or the western side of those ranges. We're likely to see um, an increase in rainfall on that western side and particularly in winter we're likely to see uh, increased rainfall. Um, it may not be Huge, I mean, we're not looking at double the amount of rainfall or anything like that. It might be an extra 10%, something like that, um, but enough to probably make a difference um, in terms of 
you know, um, farm op operations and pasture growth and, and things like that. Um, and we're also likely to see uh, more intense rainfall events as the atmosphere warms more because a warmer atmosphere can hold more energy and more moisture and, um, and those rainfall events that, that do happen will likely be larger than they are at present. So we can expect lots more flooding. Potentially, yeah. Potentially um, more flooding, uh, larger floods. Um, but we, we don't, at the moment, have, uh, have good enough uh, modelling and information to really uh, get down to the specifics of, say, how, um, how much larger the floods will be or how um, more frequent um, those large floods will happen. But it is likely because of that increase in rainfall, we can, we can say that the floods are likely to get bigger. Thank you very much for your time today, Petra. You're welcome. Nice to chat. Thanks. Thank you to my guests today, Petra Pierce and Murray Holdaway. The government has set out new essential freshwater regulatory requirements and a couple of things grabbed my attention. The rules are set out across a range of regulations covering stock exclusion from water bodies, rules around managing at-risk farming practices like winter grazing, land use change and new limits for water bodies. The new rules will be implemented by both central government and regional councils. The new rules and the stock exclusion regulations and national environmental standards for water grazing, stock exclusion, land use changes will apply from 3 September 2020 and will be phased in over time. The changes to the national policy statement for freshwater management will be implemented by regional councils as they review and if required update their regional and catchment plans. Regional councils will have four years to work with their communities on putting into place the new policy requirements and another two years to have these operative. A couple of things grabbed my attention. Winter grazing or grazing stock on winter forage crop is permitted where the following standards can be achieved. Hill country farms, which is land over 10 degrees slope, and farms which are unable to meet the permitted activity standards will need a resource consent by 1 May 2021. To be permitted, the following standards must be met. No more than 50 hectares or more than 10% of the property, whichever is the greatest. For example, a property of 1,000 hectares, the threshold will be 100 hectares. Whereas on a property of 300 hectares, the threshold is 50 hectares. The crop paddock that has a mean slope of 10 degrees or less, the crop is set back by 5 metres or more from waterways. Pugging is not deeper than 20 centimetres. Pugging covers no more than 50% of the paddock, regardless of depth. Paddocks are re-sown by 1 October or 1 November if in Otago or Southland. All winter cropping needs to be re-sown as soon as possible, or the activity has a certified freshwater farm plan. If consent is required, then it will only be granted by the Regional Council if the area of winter forage crop is not more than the greatest extent of area under winter forage crop from 2014 to 2019. And the second thing, existing irrigation consent holders who take 5 to 20 litres of water per second or more must measure their water use every 15 minutes, store their records and electronically submit their records to the council every day. For some irrigators, this is a big change from their existing practices. National Policy Statement for Freshwater Management sets out what the regional councils have to do in managing land and freshwater health, which includes working with their communities. Regional councils will have three years to have regional plans in place, which give effect 
and a further two years to have the rules in force. The National Policy Statement for Freshwater Management sets mandatory values for freshwater such as freshwater ecological health and numerical freshwater quality bottom lines which must be achieved. A decision was made not to introduce a new bottom line for nitrogen to manage ecosystem health. That being said, it has been indicated that this will be revisited following the general election and once further scientific advice is received. New bottom lines are now in place for sediment, which will have implications for hill country farming in particular. Regional councils have been given the flexibility to set dissolved reactive phosphorus limits in their plans based on the specific regional situation and reduce these over time in partnership with their communities instead of adhering to a cross-country bottom line. A lot of the changes are impractical and I can already see many farmers will be non-compliant straight off the bat. And who is expected to pay for all the increased costs? That's right, the farmer is. 30 to 40 years ago, most farmers' goals were to increase production off the land, which meant intensification and land use change. Wind the clock forward to today, the farmer has a different mindset, both through regulation and... More importantly, the farmer's desire to leave the property in a better state and indeed the environment in which they live. Sustainability is right at the fore of their minds. When will farmers get the recognition they deserve? And when will the foot come off the policymaker's throttle? With land prices continuing to increase and costs and compliance continuing to pile on, margins are continuing to get squeezed. Indeed, we all want improved biodiversity and an improved footprint. But we need workable and realistic targets to work towards. And I'm just not seeing policymakers and farmers on the same page currently, which the industry so desperately needs. Thank you for listening and catch you next time on Factor Magri.